while police photographing our license plate. What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Good afternoon and welcome to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando. Today's show is dedicated to three women who are standing up for our children. Dorothy McAuliffe, Kimberly Davis, and Andrea Miller. Believe me, you are going to want to stay tuned for my conversation with these remarkable women, each of whom is the personification of the true meaning of giving back to our future. We begin with a most revealing discussion about one of the greatest and arguably most surprising challenges to children in our country, hunger. For that, may I introduce the First Lady of the Commonwealth of Virginia, Ms. Dorothy McAuliffe, talking with us today from Richmond, Virginia, to share with us her work with the No Kid Hungry Virginia campaign. Welcome, Ms. McAuliffe, and thank you for joining us today. And if you don't mind, please introduce us to who you invited to be with us today as well. Yes, hi. Uh, it, it's great to be here, Marcello. Thank you so much. And I also have with me here Eddie Oliver, who is with the No Kid Hungry Virginia campaign and who works in the governor's office with me here in e- Richmond. Excellent. Thank you, and welcome to you, too. Um, oh, thank you, Pat. Uh, my pleasure. Is it true that one in six kids in Virginia struggle with hunger, I mean, especially in the summer months? Is that a real statistic? Absolutely. That is absolutely the real number, and that is 300,000 Virginia children who are food insecure every year in Virginia. And it is shocking to me, as it was to my husband when he was elected and, and began his administration, and actually during his campaign as we looked into the numbers to see if we were to win, what would the tools we would have available to us learning that, that staggering number of children? As we know, and I know you agree, even one child going hungry in Virginia is not where we want to be as a commonwealth. Exactly. What constitutes a food insecure household? And how, do we have any idea how many children live in, in food insecure households? Number is three hundred thousand, and that mm. is uh, that means that you don't have a reliable access to food for a consistent period of time every single year. And so, what we're trying to do with the No Kid Hungry campaign specifically is take advantage of existing federal feeding programs that are available to our children in need. The free and reduced lunch program, the, the national lunch program, has been in place since the nineteen forties, and Congress consistently has authorized spending to make sure we don't have hungry children. Mm in our schools because school is the best place to reach children yes. um, it's where we can reach most of them and it's their best uh, for, for many many children um, for all children actually it's their best opportunity for success and to grow and to thrive and so we are trying to ensure that Virginia is and our local schools are doing the best they can to leverage those feeding federal feeding programs and those resources in their school districts with the breakfast program the lunch program the after school programs that are available for our students. 
Excellent. I was wondering, you know, we, we of course, hunger is the, the worst thing, but when we, we need to think beyond that, I guess, and I, I know you have, how does it impact on a child's productivity in school? And, and the question I've been wondering about, does childhood hunger have any long-term effects? In other words, when you're an adult, are you still paying for the hunger you, you felt and experienced as a child? Well, I think that we know that that's true. We've we've met many adults along the way, many who work in our schools, actually. Mm. Um, I met a, a school principal and an assistant principal at, a, at an elementary school in Loudoun County who talked about the impact hunger had on their lives, their learning, their, their you know, just their whole well-being. And we know that children can't be ready to learn. Uh, we, they see conduct problems. They see tardiness, absentees, trips to the nurse all kinds of challenges that interfere with their learning every school day mm. uh, for those children and families who are suffering from insecurity around food and, and the anxiety and stress that that brings. And of course, we know that there are many challenges that you know children living in poverty face, and this is just one answer, but we yes. think it's a, an important piece um, to their their ability to grow, their brain to develop, their ability for their, their minds and bodies to, to reach their, their full potential every day. Mm. We know that, you know, schools and principals make sure that on SOL day everyone gets breakfast, and we believe that that's important every day every of the year, day. so and mm. lead up to those test dates. And so that's why when we have only a 50% participation rate in our students who are eligible for free and reduced lunch, we know we we can do better. And so my office, and then partnering with the No Kids Hungry Campaign in Virginia, as well as business leaders, nonprofits in every region of the Commonwealth, we're all coming together to support schools to help them figure out how we can support them as they as they look for ways to change up their, their school service, their breakfast service models mm-hmm. to, to make sure more children are able to take advantage of those breakfasts um, at the start of the day. And as a simple act, of making that breakfast available after the school bell rings mm-hmm. really makes a big difference. Do you know, uh, uh, given the, the number of children who are eligible to receive free meals or at least reduced price meals, why does such a small percentage participate in school meal programs? Well, actually, the participation in school lunches is at a really a good number. Good. Uh, what we're working on specifically are the low numbers, the low percentage rates of participation in school breakfast. Summer meals and mm-hmm. uh, the summer meal. Well, I said school part breakfast participation is at just a little over fifty-one percent. Mm-hmm. In the summertime, that participation finding a, a, a summer meal. It's about thirteen percent of our kids who need one are mm-hmm. actually connecting with a summer meal. So we're working with libraries, nonprofits, as we said, in the communities to boys and girls mm-hmm. groups, yeah, church, faith-based groups that are helping to build access and availability for those summer meals, which is so important. If we can partner it with an academics during the summer, it's even better mm-hmm. to reduce that academic slide that happens over the summer months that all parents know about. If sure. you're not keeping uh, engaged with uh, enriching activities, then you know we do see the academic slide happen in the fall when they come back and they have to you know, kind of go back and begin again. So summer feeding and, and enrichment activities for those kids that live at the poverty line are, are really super critically important. Marcello, I think we have time for one more question. Sure. Well, then, we know that the General Assembly has uh, passed a, a half-million-dollar budget amendment to support uh, the Commonwealth School breakfast expansion. What motivates them? If, is it a, a improvement in the children's scoring, test scoring, and fewer disciplinary issues? What can we show politicians, uh, in particular, and other organizations that, that this food program is working and is necessary? I guess that kind of ties in with the Out of School Nutrition Summit you recently held. That's right. Well, thank you. That's a, that's a great question. So, actually, hunger and food insecurity is a very bipartisan issue. And so when we went to the General Assembly to advocate for this additional money last year, $537,000 uh, last year that was approved in the governor's budget, working in a bipartisan way with members of the General Assembly, we were able to connect students in 206 schools and 26 divisions mm-hmm. with 
you know, helping them switch up their breakfast service model. So I talk about this breakfast after the bell. So where yes. breakfast becomes actually part of the school day. And yes, they, whether it is just the idea of children being hungry in their districts, mm-hmm. which uh, really speaks powerfully to all our members of the General Assembly, but also looking at the data, which shows that if children start the day with breakfast, 17 and a half point percentage points improvements in math on standardized test scores, mm-hmm. and it decreased absentees, decreased tardiness. Um, as I mentioned, the conduct behaviors yes. are improved. Teachers, you know, will have came to testify about how they immediately see the class settle down in a different sort of way in the mornings when they have breakfast time together. And and the teacher knows that everyone is starting off with a full stomach and ready to concentrate and learn and do their best. So we really saw the General Assembly come together in a bipartisan way Mm -hmm. um, to support this amendment. And because there is such a need, we had to turn away through that so that allowed for a grant application for our schools to switch up their breakfast model a little bit so they could do it after the school day. Excellent. And even though it's a federal reimbursement, we're talking about the business model of how do you serve breakfast in the classroom do you, or getting buying those, purchasing those kiosks or grab-and-go breakfast. Those little those costs that make a big difference to schools but don't require a lot of money invested by the state sure that more students are able to participate because the food itself is fully reimbursed by the federal government, as I said earlier. Mm-hmm. But we did find such success and unfortunately had to turn away about 300 schools. And so this year, the governor is announcing today, in fact, his budget. It's a very exciting budget. Uh, first time in Virginia history that we have a $100 billion budget, complete wow. budget. And uh, within that budget, he has uh, provided a million dollars um, so it increased by about a half of uh, 500000 mm-hmm. to um, this year to help improve access to school breakfast, to help schools absorb those costs that are involved in, in switching from before school to after the school day starts for the breakfast model to really make it part of the educational day. And we know mm-hmm. that it's a really important part of the day. It's important, I do believe, as a mother of five, as books and laptops and all the other uh, parts of um, supporting education that we believe good nutrition, um, access to quality meals um, is as important part of the day to the learning that goes on. How can those listening help uh, the No Kid Hungry Virginia campaign? Website, what do we do? Well, there is a website and it is nokidhungry.org Virginia. And of course, that website, nokidhungry.org Virginia, has a lot of facts, statistics, um, information about uh, what's happening in Virginia around school participation in, in meals. And of course, donations and resources are always welcome and needed because it is like a, a ground campaign to uh, be able to market where our summer meals are, to provide non-state funded grants as well to schools who are have a high need that don't have the budget in many ways to make sure that, you know, the costs associated with some of the feeding programs are are put into place. And then, of course, just talking to, in your local school, you yes. know, parents talking to their their teachers, their administrators about how is a, how effective, how many kids are participating, what is the need, and even in, even in schools with incredible resources, there will be, in Fairfax County, there are a 26%, you know, free and reduced lunch rate, and that's about 45, over 45,000 children in Fairfax County alone. Wow. So, um, you know, that's, it's a lot of children, and, lot. and as we said at the beginning, every single one is very important to all of us and to our future. So please do, I hope your listeners will, go to the website, learn more about No Kids Hungry and the No Kid Hungry campaign, and it is part of a national organization, Share Our Strength, which yes. has been involved with school feeding and hunger for about 30 years. So it's a, it's a great organization and one I'm very pleased to partner with here in Virginia. Marvelous. I wish you and, and the No Kid Hungry Virginia campaign all the very best, and I thank you so very much, First Lady of Virginia, Ms. Dorothy McAuliffe, for being on the show today. Thank you, Marcello. Have a wonderful holiday. You and, too. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye now. We've been talking with the First Lady of Virginia, Ms. Dorothy McAuliffe. 
and we are certainly thankful that she was on the show and making us more aware of what our children need to live a happy, healthy, and productive life. Please support No Kid Hungry Virginia campaign. Thank you. Stay with us because our next guest is the founder and CEO of Virginia's Untapped Voices of Tomorrow. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Cassidy McMillan. I'm the director and writer of the documentary film, Bullies and Friends. Because I never would have wanted, never would have wanted any of them to be scared. A child of 14 would take her own life because of bullying. Bullies and Friends tells the true story of a 14-year-old girl named Dawn Marie, who after being bullied and threatened with death by three girls at her school, hung herself in her bedroom with her dog's leash. In her suicide note, Dawn Marie named her three tormentors. The incident sparked a groundbreaking investigation that led to the precedent-setting court case, where for the first time in North America, teens were made to stand trial for bullying. When my sister Brenda and I first saw the documentary Bullies and Friends, we knew we wanted to get involved however we could. Bullying has become a worldwide epidemic. Thousands of children from across the globe have committed suicide due to bullying. As a nurse, I've seen bullicide have horrific effects on the family and friends. According to the Centers for Disease Control, bullying among school-aged children is a major public health problem. Over the past 10 years, the occurrence of bullying-related suicides across the globe has shown the connection between bullying and suicides. Suicide is the third leading cause of death among children. Tragically, almost every other week from across the globe, another child commits suicide due to bullying. These are only several of the children who have taken their lives due to being bullied. Seth Walsh, Stephen Yuri, Carlos Vigil, Rebecca Ann Sedwick, Phoebe Prince, Carl Joseph Walker Hoover, Kelly Yeomans, Bart Pelos, Jasmine McLean. One child is too many. We need to take action now. You can get involved by joining this film's cause of bullying and bullyside prevention. I first heard about Don Marie's story on The Oprah Winfrey Show. I was horrified to learn that a 14-year-old girl would feel so terrified that she felt her only escape was to take her own life. I reached out to Don Marie's mom, Cindy. Cindy and I both felt that telling Don Marie's story would help prevent another boy or girl from taking their life due to bullying. Bullies and Friends not only recounts this powerful story, but it offers solutions to bullying, to schools, parents, kids, and communities. In the film, we have interviews with the nation's top bullying experts, and an exclusive interview with the judge who presided over and handed down the precedent-setting ruling, as well as interviews with teens involved in the case, including the main teen girl brought to trial for bullying. In making Bullies and Friends, I've traveled to schools and youth organizations across North America, where I've worked with thousands of kids, hundreds of teachers, parents, educators, counselors, and other community leaders in my research on bullying and bully sides. We were really struck by how this film actually presents solutions to bullying. The film is emotional and deeply affecting. I'm hoping that Cassidy's work can save lives. Brenda and I set up a special film screening of Bullies and Friends that was just for parents, teachers, and kids so that they could all talk about the film afterwards. Bullies and Friends open the dialogue on bullying and bullying prevention. The kids and their parents at our film festival screening really wanted to show it at their school. We can really relate to how much Cassidy has sacrificed as a filmmaker to make this project happen. 
This film can help so many kids and it's already making a huge difference. At some of the screenings at schools, students have come up to us afterward and said that prior to seeing the film, they were this close to committing suicide due to bullying they were experiencing, but said that after they saw this film, they knew that someone cared, they saw the devastation their death would cause, and now said that they would seek help instead. And that, to us, has made the long journey in making this film more than worth it. We've had people say to us that they want to help prevent bullying side, but they don't know what to do. Helping this film raise money and get out into the world is how you can help. The film has been met with tremendous positive response from schools, organizations, and events throughout North America where we've screened early versions of the film. We went ahead and held preview screenings due to audience demand from schools. This film has achieved distribution with a global distribution company. The company is patiently standing by, waiting for the film, but we must meet all the funding requirements. Know that you will be involved with a film with an important cause already slated for worldwide release. This campaign's funding is needed for all the pre-distribution requirements to get this film released across the globe. Costs include multi-platforms of distribution, closed captioning, sound mixing, and the many other production costs. Only a small percentage of independent films get selected by a distributor for worldwide release. We're very proud that Bullies and Friends was able to achieve this amazing accomplishment. This is an all-or-nothing campaign. If we don't raise the total funds needed, this bullying prevention film cannot be released to the schools, parents, kids, and communities across the globe. This film is a grassroots movement that is helping kids and communities. Any amount you contribute is huge to us. Every dollar helps in this campaign to help us prevent bullying and bully sides. We're asking you to go donate today. We have great perks, including being among the first to receive the DVD when the film is released. Be listed in the film's credit special thanks section, which means you will be listed on the film's IMDb page, and the exclusive opportunity to be listed as an associate producer or co-executive producer of this important film. We're also including a needed stretch campaign to fund the film's bullying prevention outreach tour. We need you to share this campaign and its cause with your family, amongst your friends, and anyone you know who's been affected by bullying email, through social networks. If you have any friends in the press and media, please let them know about Bullies and Friends and how helping this film get made can help kids all around the world. We thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. My second guest today is Kimberly Davis. And Kimberly Davis is the CEO and founder of Untapped Voices. Good afternoon, Kimberly. How are you? I'm good. And yourself? I am good, too. And I'm very pleased to have you join us in the second half of the segment. And I know you've written a, a new book, Mama's Pearl, and how that sort of um, plays into or is a product of, I guess it's a two-way street between Untapped Voices and Mama's Pearl, um, they give to each other and create each other and, and grow and learn from each other. But tell us what you're doing for and for whom you're doing it and how Mama's Pearl and, and your daughter and poetry and all that fits. Okay. Um, I started out um, Untapped Voices because I wanted to give back to um, the inner city kids. Mm-hmm. And what we do is we taking um meet on friday for one hour with inner city kids that have stories that they just need a outlet they need a way to get them told sometimes it's through poetry through dance or through writing books and so what we do is we meet and i bring in outside people one of the people that i bring is my daughter she does a lot of open mic shows and she competes a lot with her poetry so Mm -hmm. she comes in and she works with some of the poets, the young poets, uh-huh. I'll say, uh, they're, they're in the future, so we'll say the young poets. Okay. And then she helps them tune in their skills by, you know, examples. She'll take them, sometimes we can take them, get permission from the parents to take them over to uh, some of the open mics, and they can just watch her perform or watch her compete. And so that has really been really good for us. And mm-hmm. then when 
we have the ones that's not the poets, but, but the ones that like to write. You know, yes. they have stories, and so we work with them. And what we do is we help them to get their book put in writing, and we get it copyrighted, and then we show them how to get it edited and get it, you know, book form. We, we walk them through this process so they can see the end result. Gotcha. When you're talking about, oh, well, we can write this book, and kids, that's not enough to hold their attention. Uh-huh. You, you have to deal hands with them, you know? Like, sure. Like, okay, let's just sit down and let's do an outline of what we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. And then once we get that outline done, we start doing it. And so once they start seeing it materialize, you know, it, it's just a real happy feeling for the kids. And most of all, the happy feeling for me because I'm able to help them. So you are, and, and again, uh, if I can read into this, untapped voices. You are untapping the voices that are often not heard. You are releasing them, right. giving them a voice. Exactly. And you do exactly. this. You do this through um, poetry and other writing and dance and comedy. Do a lot. And right. and it isn't just inner city youth, but you help ex offenders and juveniles as well. Yes. I work with ex-offenders, and I work with you and all. A lot of the ex-offenders have stories that they, you know, want to get told, so we write books, and then some of them, we just help coaching them and showing them how to present themselves on interviews to get jobs. Uh-huh. I do believe in second chances, and sometimes we run into people that don't believe in that because they have not had success with it because they have not been taught how to present themselves. And uh, in particular, in, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, this is slightly off, but not really. Uh, do you ever get involved in helping uh, uh, ex-offenders who committed nonviolent felonies? Uh, there is a process, although it is uh, filled with uh, hurdles, but there is a process to help them to get their voting privileges back. Is that, right. and that, that certainly is a way to get one's voice heard. Is that uh, ever a possibility for untapped voices or for your... You're, it is. Uh-huh. Uh-uh. It is, and that's the one thing that I hear, you know, I, I, one of the girls that I was working with, she just actually got her rights back to vote. Oh, wow. Uh, she, that was a process that she was doing before she met up with me. Uh-huh. And so now me and her are working together to show others how to do it. Fantastic. And it is a process. Yes. You have to go through, you know, the parole board in Richmond, Virginia, or, you know, the Commonwealth in whatever part of Virginia you're in. Mm-hmm. But it can be done. Excellent. Tell us about your new book, Mama's Pearl. I have a new book out. It's called Mama's Pearl, and actually it's going to drop on Wednesday. And that book was based on, um, it's about a, 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 a teenager that was real good in school. She just got caught up with the wrong guy, ended up getting pregnant. Mm-hmm. The guy denied he was the father, and so she went on. She completed school, got a master's degree, got a job you know, secure a child, mm-hmm. and one day she met this guy that she thought was the perfect guy, and he turned out to be the wrong guy. Mm-hmm. And so that book was wrote because I want to show that everything that looked good is not always good. Gotcha. You, you, and so and that's not what it was based on. Exactly. You can't judge a book by its cover, so to speak, forgive uh-huh. the pun. But you do have to look beyond, not only as individuals, but our whole society and nation, I think, needs to look beyond the superficial. We get a lot of, uh, we get a lot of on, you know, the surface of reporting and media, whatever, and we don't really get in in depth with uh, problem solving for all Americans. And I think Untapped Voices makes a good model for trying to reach those who are not who are not only not reached or reached out to even but are right. are, are forgotten more often than not so right. what <laughs> what inspired you to uh, launch untapped voices um i got in trouble and i was one of those that Ten years in the military, had a great career ahead of me, and mm-hmm. I got out, couldn't find a job, hooked up with the wrong person, got introduced to drugs, and I ended up going to jail. And then I had met a 15-year-old while I was out in my addiction, and I tried to save her, and I didn't understand that I couldn't save her because I couldn't save me. Mm-hmm. And once I was incarcerated, they told me that she had OD'd, and so I decided at that, time, that point right there, that I was going to do something different with my life. I was going to try to reach out to 
the young adults and juveniles and everybody that I could, mm -hmm. you know, just sharing my own story of stress because a lot of the kids look up to me because they used to see me all the time in my uniform and stuff. But I'm like, do not be fooled because you saw me in a uniform because I took the wrong turn too. It was just so happy that I got back on track. And that's the one thing that I want them to understand. You, everybody's going to make a mistake somewhere down the line in mm -hmm. life. But don't let that one mistake stop you from being who you want to be. And so and that's what I teach them. Excellent. So you uh, you sort of have the bookends are uh, uh, you in United States Army for 10 years is it? as a uh, telecommunications operator and you uh, a former felon. So yeah. and between those two uh, extremes, if you will, you your experience is now being applied to help others not make your mistakes. Uh, right. And Untapped Voices certainly is a tremendous program for that for for young people and ex-offenders and juveniles. Tell me, um, tell us how can we help? How do we donate? Is it possible to donate to Untapped Voices and if or give us a website donate. and whatever? Yes. If you go to www.untappedvoices.org, it will give you all the information you need to make donations. We do take donations, and the donations are to help um, the, the cost of getting the materials to write these books or to get the places where they can practice the praise dance and or showcase their talent. So that's pretty much what um, the donations are used for. So far, I've been doing this for five years, and I've just been taking the money out of my pocket I got and doing you. it. From my book sales, I was just invested back into that. And another book you wrote was an earlier book, A Brother's Secret, but now uh, Mama's Pearl is about to come out, and you say that um, you have actually used the proceeds from your former books to pay for the program of Untapped Voices? Yes, sir. Wow, that's that's certainly going the extra mile, that's for sure. Well, any parting words? We have to go, but tell us, what what do you want to leave us with, uh, Kim Davis? What what should we know about you and Untapped Voices that you want us to take away from this conversation? The children are our future, and it takes a village to raise a child. Mm. And so I'm going to do my part to do what I can, and I just advise everybody that can to help. Okay. So that's untappedvoices.org? And we've been talking with Kimberly Davis, who is the founder and CEO of Untapped Voices. Thank you so much, Kimberly, for being on the show. We appreciate all that you do, and we wish you all the very Thank best. You. Thank, Thank you. you for having me. My pleasure. Bye now. Bye-bye. Stay with us. We'll be right back with our third and final guest today in this tribute to a trio of remarkable women. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. We were intrigued when we started hearing reports of an entirely original film that had those in the know talking. It had been seen at the 2014 issue of the Sundance Film Fest and was being described as the first Iranian vampire western. Hmm, interesting. A girl walks home alone at night. Turns out to be exactly the kind of film we love to feature here at the Indie Film Minute. Beautifully shot in luminous black and white by an emerging Iranian-American filmmaker. Its brilliant imagery hangs in our memory alongside the greatest of art. When the final credits roll, two thoughts dance through our heads. First, what a perfect ending. And second, we want more. A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night is a love story between a striving young man and a female vampire. It is set in a world of decadence and disaffected youth with stratification of wealth and cruelty between the exploiters and exploited. A once flourishing mankind has brought itself into decline and devastation. Yet strength remains in the heart of the hopeful. And here, one of those hopeful souls just happens to be a vampire. Dark, but brilliantly effervescent. A girl walks home alone at night. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Find us on the web at IndieFilmMinute.com. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show with my final Virginia guest today, my political mentor, Andrea Miller. Hello, Andrea. How are you today? Good afternoon, Mark. 
Cello. So delighted to join you on this afternoon. I am I'm so happy to have you too because so much is always happening. But for those who may not remember uh, Andrea from earlier shows, let me tell you a bit about her. She is the executive director and IT director of PeopleDemandingAction.org. You want to visit that, by the way, and get involved. She was the Democratic nominee in 2008 for the House of Representatives in Virginia's 4th District. She ran on Medicare for All and Clean Energy Platform. Andrea was endorsed by the Progressive Democrats of America, California Nurses, and the Sierra Club. And I could go on and on, but we only have her for one segment today. So the reason I asked Andrea to join us today, we're all very excited all over social media and America that there's been a climate change Paris Accord. And I would love, uh, you know, as a person with a half full glass, I'm... I want to be optimistic about this, but first of all, it's not a treaty. It's not agreed upon yet. It's, uh, but at least we got a lot of the uh, the leaders of the world in one room to to acknowledge intellectually, at least, that there is such a thing as climate change, global warming, and whether or not mankind caused it is not the issue. The point is, it's it's having its effect on our children. And mankind has to do something about it. Exactly. So, Andrea, I'd like to know what you think of this new climate change uh, international, if you will, accord. But also, if you can in your answer, if there is a bridge in your opinion, can you tell us what the bridge is, the connecting bridge between an international climate change accord and the infamous, if you will, trade deal TPP? Oh, wow, that's a big order. Yes. Um, Things first, um, the agreement in Paris, there are 196 countries involved, and it is a combination of, of course, the countries that we know as the superpowers, as well as developing nations, and what was good about this particular agreement is many of our developing nations are what I would call water or island nations, mm. meaning half to maybe more than half of their land mass is surrounded by either an ocean or a sea. So as the global ice caps or the Arctic ice caps melt and sea levels rise, these nations are exceedingly vulnerable to sea rise. Mm. And they could be facing near, if not total, extinction. Mm. So their requirement was very, very, very aggressive. And that is that we must not allow the temperature of the Earth to go beyond or above 1.5 Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit from basically where we are. Because in the event that we get warmer than that, there's a disaster for these nations. Well... And were these um, were these smaller nations represented in the Paris Accord? I mean, were were yes. delegates there? Yes, uh, they were. Yes, yes, they were. So not only were our smaller island nations, the Marshall Islands, and many others represented, and the African nations were there. Yes, the indigenous nations, because some of these island nations are basically still indigenous people. And so the Indigenous Environmental Network, which is um, mainly U.S.-based, they were also an insurance. So you had really an historic gathering of people in insurance. It wasn't just our typical, only the superpowered children. And that's what I thought you said, but I wanted to, to clarify. I thought it was quite 
an international, I think perhaps uh, as a first step, the greatest thing about it is that so many different nations and peoples and cultures were represented. But I just wanted to clarify. I thought that's what you had said. Now, 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 on on the downside, when we talked about who was represented, uh-huh. Big Oil also had their big feet in the conference as well. Uh-huh. So it's not as though our big climate polluters weren't there. They were there. So everybody was there. The big, the small, the good, the bad. The bad and the ugly. Yes. So oil yeah, companies... Yeah, exactly. So the oil companies were, of course, there to... Well, I don't want to put words in your mouth or theirs, but it would seem to me they've known... Certainly we know Exxon knew. They've known for some time that um, they were negatively impacting on the planet, on our air. They, on... They, they've known since the 70s. They've known yes. for decades. This is not news to them. You know, there was an old movie. It wasn't particularly made well, but uh, its message was important, and its stars were phenomenal. That's George C. Scott and Marlon Brando, no less. And it's called The Formula. And this was made back in, oh, I would say the early 80s. But I've seen it, and it was about this very point, that the oil and and, uh, corporatism, long before that word was coined, were destroying the environment, and they knew it, and and yet they were making deals and until, I think the, the movie implies, until they were able to acquire newer, greener forms of energy. Well, one of the things that is happening, unfortunately, is um, big oil and the big energy companies are doing exactly that. Uh-huh. So that it becomes all about power and control. Yes. So they want to control the green energy sources so that it is at a time of their choosing that we make the transition as opposed to a time of our choosing from Dominion Power purchase the wind leases um, off the Virginia coast. Uh-huh. And they are now the predominant owner of all the windlasses. It's like Nestle trying so to privatize. It is not a a quote green energy organization. Uh-huh. It is Dominion Power. So that means that we don't really see the development of substantial forms of wind energy until Dominion decides that. And you know, again, I urge everyone see this old movie. If you you know, I know it's a movie. It's not even a great movie, but it's a it's it tells a story uh, of exactly what's happening now. And it told this story, as I said, either late seventies or early eighties. And it's what Andrea and I are talking about. Except she gives us that that extra always that extra bit of information, uh, as does Brando in the film that. They want this on their terms. You know, it's not a generous offer. It's to be at their convenience. And, of course, it's good, I feel, always to have people, everybody around the table. But when such power is around the table, do we hear the voices of people like the Marshall Islands? The Marshall Islands are already sinking, are they not? That is true. And now we don't hear the voice of the people, we hear the voices of the corporations seeking to increase their bottom line. How can they get more money by doing less? While we're talking about old movies, let me throw one in. Mm-hmm. That was probably one of the most entertaining and one of the best anti-nuclear movies ever made, uh-huh. and that was The China Central yes. with Jack Lemmon yeah. and Jane Fonda. And Jane Fonda, yes. And, and you know, uh, we're not here just to talk about old movies, but sometimes Hollywood's message is, is well, let's put it this way. We're more apt as Americans to sit and watch a movie and be uh, moved by it or impressed by it than we are to be able to discern between the gossip we're given on corporate-owned media. But I don't want to get too too far off, but that's an excellent point. There have... Entertainment. Entertainment. The best way to make 
simply introduce an idea to the masses, to educate them, is to entertain them at the same time. Exactly. And that, I think, um, we've reached a point where we need to now respond to that edutainment. You know, the, the, the Congress, we don't know. Uh, Mitch McConnell, surprisingly, at least to me, has uh, decided to hold up uh, TPP and the president, I, my hat off to him, he, he has had from the very beginning tremendous amount on his plate. And while I've not always agreed with him, uh, I think he has done reasonably well, all things considered. But what has he wrought in Paris with this, um, with this potential, let's say, a, a climate change agreement? What, what are we realistically, pragmatically coming away with? Is it possible? Are we just... Is it just a smoke screen? What is it? It's going to be very, very interesting. Um, there is nothing in the TPP itself about climate change. They specifically made it a point to not say anything at all about it. However, this is how it plays out. In the end, if we were to say, it really wouldn't matter what was decided in Paris or anywhere else for that particular agreement because the TPP supersedes everything that we have ever done. It supersedes all national and international law. It is basically super law. So let's say we have the TPP and State of New York has banned fracking. Well, the oil and gas companies who are partners in the TPP, there are 608 corporate partners in the TPP. Mm. And big oil and gas and energy, they are most definitely represented. Well, they would be able to say to the state of New York, your ban on fracking represents a threat to our potential profit. So we are going to sue you for your ban on fracking. Now, this is not going to be a lawsuit brought in a regular court of law. It's mm-hmm. going to be a lawsuit brought in a tribunal court where there is a corporate judge, and then there will be a corporate prosecuting attorney and a corporate defending attorney. So in this particular instance, the corporations cannot lose because they are basically the judge and both attorneys. So the bridge is the corporations, the the energy uh, industry of whether it's um, sitting down at the table saying, let's talk about climate change, or sitting in a court of law and saying you can't do that because of TPP. Because it interferes with our profit. Yes. And when we look at that, then we have to look at, do the oil and gas corporate giants feel or care about people in nations or developing nations. Mm. Do they technically give a as whether those people or those lands exist? There's no fossil fuels on them. Mm-hmm. I'm going to assume these are not huge mega fires, so why would they be concerned? Obviously, they're concerned for it is the right thing and the humane and human thing to do, doesn't really seem to be a big driving force behind it, what they do. It, it does. The other thing that we saw in the parrot is women and the indigenous people, when we look at climate justice, while they were able to drive the goal of where we want to be, mm-hmm. there is still the issue of we are and fracking basically does a number of really poor things. We've all seen gas plants, and we know that fracking 
destroyed the water in the immediate area, and we aren't really sure how far outside the area. We have also learned that fracking can cause earthquakes mm. because we are going in and literally drilling through the Earth's crust. And with fracking wells, there are a lot of wells, almost more than there are oil wells. Mm. The other thing that we also tend to really miss in fracking is where a number of these frackers are. So when we look at states like North Dakota, where you have a very large indigenous population and you have frackers all over the area, mm. well, there's a real negative impact on women. It's very, very limited jobs. And um, as I was reading on an NPR interview, mm-hmm. the fracking wells in North Dakota did create 11,000 jobs. Mm. However, 10,000 people moved in from out of state. Wow. So that meant that local people only got about 1,000 jobs. Now, imagine 11,000 men, basically, living in a relatively small area where these fracking wells are. Mm-hmm. The women, since there is no work for them, are now being subject to rape. Mm. They are involving themselves in prostitution in order to survive. It has created a major, major local Mm. So women are being exploited. Women are being killed. This is, you know... And this is what this environment brings with How do we... I mean, it's almost like the Wild West. You know, I was going to say that and also... Again, I guess I'm, we seem to be slipping into movies today. I don't remember the title of the movie, but the kinds of things. It was about what happened to women who uh, had to work in Mexico and how and and uh, being caught out and actually m- murdered in in the uh, rural areas and nobody ever hearing from them again. I we just seemed in. We we seem to have, and I, and I I try to have a positive show, but I, reality is reality. We seem to have a corporate-driven, uh, top-to-bottom society now that really is, uh, you know, one way I can explain it, and this has just been my conjecture, when people say, why would anybody want the uh, the Arctic to melt? And I used to always say, well, because it's easier to drill through water than ice. Um uh, is that sort of the the mentality here to make it? I think you even said to make it easier to make more money doing less. Is is that what's driving? Uh, that's... Um, and you know that that's a very interesting thought. I had never really considered that before, but that that there could be a lot to that because we do know that under Arctic ice there is. Oil. Yes. And yeah, if the ice were not there, that would make life um, in terms of going after these fossil fuels that much simpler, even though the whole notion of continuing to utilize fossil fuels at the rate that we are mm-hmm. is consistently and continually contributing to the warming of the planet, yes. which is contributing to all of our destruction, including the people who own these oil and gas companies. Exactly. One would think they would be smart enough to want to save their own lives, but apparently their greed knows no better. You know, I hear what you're saying, and I often say, you know, I, I think they plan on privatizing, as they have already to some extent, space travel, and they're going to figure out how to live on Mars. But they're just, you know, it's just astounding to me what's behind it. If you gather all of this wealth and these mansions and bonuses, if you can't breathe the air, you can't come out, you live in a bubble. You know, and waters, uh, we know about Nestle trying to 
privatized water and food deserts already in the inner cities in particular, which, you know, we don't have time, but we're going to take the time, Andrew, if you have a couple more moments, I'd just like you to explain to people as briefly as you can, but, but take your time. Climate justice, you've mentioned that earlier, and the injustice of climate change falls on where uh, plants are, are built and how they affect local economies. Now, I know you, you spoke of that for North Dakota, but give us some other examples of how climate change brings with it climate injustice. we have to look at is when we decide we're going to locate things like landfills, where we're going to build a new coal-fired plant, Mm. where we're going to put a nuclear plant. There are certain places where we know they're not even going to consider putting it those particular items. We know that they are never going to consider building a landfill in a wealthy area. Mm. And immediately people would say, well, the land is too expensive, the land is too valuable. So what they're going to do is they're going to look for land where you have a very disempowered population. Mm. Probably they're going to be communities of color, and they're going to put the landfill, or they're going to put the um, coal-fired plant in those neighborhoods. Mm. And again, landfill, coal-fired plant, um, many of these new plants that are incinerators, you find most of them going into communities of color. Mm-hmm. And out of those plants, you find all types of toxins going into the air, and you start to find an incredible percentage of children and the overall population suffering from asthma and other diseases that are related to serving dirty air, because we breathe. 24 hours a day, seven days a day. All right, we're going to have to go, but let's end this with a call to action, Andrea. I mentioned at the top of the show, peopledemandingaction.org. Tell us about that. How can we, uh, what do we do when we go online and find it? Is there a way to to be, uh, how do we become more involved? With that, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you have heard the call to action. It is serious. It is now. Climate change is now. Global warming is now. Uh, our children are already being affected, especially in uh, some areas more than others. But it's not. 
it's not exclusive. <laughs> Climate change and global warming affects everyone. So my thanks to Andrea Miller, uh, uh, who is the executive director of PeopleDemandingAction.org for being on the show today. Thank you so much, Andrea. Thank you very much for having me, Mark Stella. Take care. Thank you. Bye now. Stay with us as we'll be right back with a final comment from The Reasonable Voice. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, The Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard around the world. The simple truth, there are no simple solutions. The last democratic debate was an outspoken, raucous triumvirate of speaking truth to the power and mistakes of a team of rivals that pinballed almost every issue on the minds of both the brave and the fear-mongered. Republican bluster and derision was replaced by democratic passion and decisiveness, and even conservatives were the beneficiaries of clear-thinking, mutually respectful civil discourse until O'Malley's age faux pas, though letting go of Cold War thinking is a worthy gauntlet to throw down on history's fields of dishonor. Although tremendously moved by the senator's burning passion, I miss the pragmatism component. Even Obama publicly admitted he had to accept contributions from those too big to fail everything, except American poor, unemployed, underemployed, middle class, and even gated community inhabitants who think themselves safe from that tiny, luxurious, elitist economic minority using us as K Street footstools. By the way, passionate, undecided twenty-somethings, sex discrimination is not outlawed in the United States Constitution. And if you're looking for promised perfection with quick and easy solutions, just ask the diminished right to diminish student loans. If you've been too posed or paused by selfies, and if it bleeds, it leads TV media to know the difference, December's Democratic debate was a class act and a truer reflection of what American character was before the military-industrial complex became the trough at which international oil, war, and pharmaceutical corporations dip for dripping profits. Although President Abraham Lincoln may have come closest, politicians like Wall Street CEOs and seemingly too-big-to-jail banksters have never been saints. Not George Washington, not the Roosevelts, Teddy or Franklin, nor the Kennedy brothers, and certainly not the anti-American shrubs, Prescott, George H.W., and number 43, G.W.B., so when will we learn to just say no to those who appeal to our lowest and basest inhumanity, who can only spout repetitive, vague, catchy phrases, slogans, and platitudes, who practice repeat a lie loudly long enough and it becomes the truth, who embrace foreign leaders who kill dissenters, who have peaceful protesters forcibly removed from campaign rallies, who pit Americans against each other, who incite violence, who poison our water, food, neighborhoods, and golden rule, who defame the promise of our Statue of Liberty, and who deny justice and equality for all. Listen, trickle-down Reagan was no more saint than Obama, the second coming. So let's stop expecting angels in the White House and start replacing the demons in the Supreme Court, Congress, and GOP-held state legislatures. We recapture our national character by emulating heroic behavior of first responders, goodwill, employment agencies, social workers, counselors for bully targets, and the families victimized by domestic violence, rape, and mass murder. I'm impressed by the accomplishments of First Lady, Senator, and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and I agree with Senator Bernie Sanders. But we're not a one-issue nation with a pocket full of simple answers. We are both house-divided and leader in a shrinking village ever more violent against the very life of the planet and all life upon it. And to all you Obama haters, yes, I prefer presidents who must be dragged into war kicking and screaming. The constitutional lawyer cool is a plus. And I'm happy that bigotry and corporatism have wasted billions of dollars fighting an idea of hope that few can courageously embrace in time of peril. 
Anyone can believe when times are without challenge. But America's true courage and character were exemplified by Charleston families and friends left behind by American gun violence. Yet, while President Obama pinpricks ISIS to increasing effect, we're risking becoming world police, forever printed with good kill and imperialism. 2015 to 2016 is the hour for rational voters to elect prudent leaders to address towering 21st century global issues, climate change, global justice, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a secretive trade agreement being negotiated by special interest lobbyists and corporate lawyers around the world. For unions, it's like a global Scott Walker, Cokehead, Christmas wish list come true. For America, perhaps the final nail in the coffin of our often-touted exceptionalism. Both climate change and TPP are World War III, the former declared by 99% over-consumerism, and the latter the yellow brick road gold-plated by the secret tribunals of multinational corporations, American in name only. In 2016, we have the freedom to recapture our essence or in fear and denial, continue to look the other way. Join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you. And let us make it a happy new year together. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.